uh, Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 21 to 33. Okay? Now we're going to look at this uh, text over and over again over our two talks today. So let's uh, dive in and look at it. And uh, I'm, I'm reading from the, uh, this is the ESV, I think. Ephesians chapter 5, reading from verse 21, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse, verse, verse 22, Wives, submit to your hus own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water, and with, uh, water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that... Uh, yeah, there it comes back. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Our dear Father, we thank you, Lord, for your presence here. I thank you for your people here. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that you break it for us. You nourish us, Lord, that you revive us, O oh Lord, by the power of your word. And Father, Lord, may you speak, O oh Lord. We each come here with different perspectives, different backgrounds, different issues, uh, with regards to marriage, with regards to relationships, Father, we pray that your word will bring healing, will bring life, will bring renewal, will bring change, O oh God. And that only your Holy Spirit can do, and therefore we submit our time, O oh Father God, to his work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you a typical story, okay? Say that there is this couple, and both of them are Christians. And both of them are faithful churchgoers. Both came from Christian families. Both of them grew up in church. But their marriage was not quite working out. So one day they make an appointment to go see the pastor. So the pastor sits them down in his office and he does a very simple diagnostic test. All right? like ask them some questions to see if he, if he could just nail the problem but he really couldn't because, because he had been Christians for so long and they had attended so many of these marriage seminars. <laughs> they could give all the right answers to all the questions that he asked. So finally, the pastor said to the husband, Okay, uh, I won't ask you any more questions, but just tell me, on a normal day, when you come home from work, what do you do? What does your day at home look like after you come back from work? Oh, he said, that's easy. You know, when I get home from work, I'm kind of usually very tired. Um, uh, the, the, the house is usually busy. The kids are home from school and, and, and I will feel like, you know, I, I just need to stretch out on the couch. Uh, I need to kind of, uh, you know, maybe play FIFA. Anyone does that over here? You know? Yeah. God bless you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I just want to relax, you know, and, and you know that's typical of guys because men need to go into their cave. You know, right after they come back from work, you find that they really need their space to themselves. So that's what he does. And he said that my wife will be very busy, she'll be working in the kitchen, she'll be preparing dinner, and then she might ask me to do something. Like she might say, that, would you set the table, honey, or could you get the kids uh, to bathe and change them get, uh, so that we can get ready for dinner? And then he said, you know what? I want to be a good husband. I want to be a husband according to the word of God. The Bible says that I am the head of my household. And that comes up with a lot of pride. <laughs> All right? And therefore, I get to decide. Because I'm the head, I get to decide what I want to do. 
And whether I want to do what she's asking me to do. So I lie down on my couch and I flip the coin in my mind. And if a coin comes out in my mind to say that I will go out to go out and help her, I'll help her. If it says no, you just don't feel like doing it, don't do it, then I don't. You see, because I'm the head of the house. I get to decide. Now, do you see why they have a problem in their marriage? What is, what is, you know, what is biblically wrong with that? The Bible does say, husbands, you are the head of the house. And it looks like this guy was exercising his authority. But then why is it that we all know obviously that this is not right? That this expression of authority is altogether wrong? The answer is, of course, people, is in the passage. The passage, like the one that we just read, which describes the husband as the head of the home, but it clearly says the husband is the head of the home even as Christ is the head of the church. So, where did we go? Okay. Um, I think it works already, so I'm, I'm good. Yeah. So, in the same... No, where do we go? That's going so far. Oh, wow. Uh, could you go all the way? Uh, uh, now you've seen all my slides, so... Uh, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. What we're going to look at this morning is look at what the Bible actually is saying to husbands about the nature of their relationship to their wives as he's describing them as the head of the home. The whole concept of a husband's headship and a wife's submission is people, it's a huge controversy in our time and age today. But the scripture starts off even more even-handedly because it starts off saying in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, that's what we read, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now that seems to be very fair. That seems to be right. Yeah, if I submit to you, you submit to me. That's, that's equal, right? By the way, let me just pause for a moment because I, just to get a sense of who I'm speaking to. How many of you here are married people? Would you proudly raise your hands? Okay. How many of you would like to be husbands and wives someday? Would you lift up your hands? There's only one or two. This is really sad. I hope you're convinced after today's session that you want to get married. How many of you are single people? Well, that... That's anyway. Uh, are you telling me that you don't want to be a husband or wife someday? Because I'm speaking to would-be husbands and would-be wives. Uh, how many of you want to be husbands and wives someday? I still have a, a, a few more. Wow, it takes a little bit hard to convince you guys, yeah? Yeah. It's the will of God for you to get married, guys. Shall we change the whole, you know, sermon right now? Maybe we should change the sermon and talk about why is it the will of God for you to get married. <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says, Submitting to one another out of reference to Christ. And then right after that, immediately the next verse says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husbands is the head of the church. Now this... You know, the, the, it's, it's an immediate shift. Everybody submit to one another, and then the wife is suddenly singled out, and she's told, you submit to your husband. It's almost like, you know, the notion in the, in the novel, Animal Farm. All animals are created equal, but some animals are more equal than other animals. Like, it gives that feel. I mean, so, I mean, you all have to submit to one another out of reference to Christ. All equally bad wives. Listen, you are different. You are to submit to your husband as head. And the language even gets weightier when Paul adds another thing, as to the Lord. That means submitting to your husband is equal to submitting to God. That word headship, head, does not sit well in our culture, people, today. That's the reason why we need to talk about it. You could look at the word head and try to do away with it in several ways. I mean, that's what some people do. 
It's like you could say that, well, you know, Paul, Paul, you know Paul. Paul is a male chauvinist, you know. I mean, if you really believe that, you know, that, that Paul is a male chauvinist, then something is wrong with your understanding of Scripture. I'm, you know, I believe and I hope you do too, that all of Scripture is inspired by God and, 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 and it's, it's an inerrant word of God. And in order for, for Paul to be able to say this, he couldn't be a male chauvinist. He is saying something that is true, something that, is, that has stood the test of time and has been a key to marital strength and flourishing through the ages. Now other people will say, you know what, when Paul wrote this, it was culturally relevant to his time. In his culturally bound, he could be some, saying something that was true in his age and in his time, but it's probably no longer true in our time. We are a more liberated people. You know, our women are better educated. They have got more, more, more rights, more power, and all of that. Now, people, the difficulty with that kind of statement or that kind of thinking is, is actually when you come to verse 23, which says that I'm, I'm, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Well, is Christ still the head of the church today? He still is. Does the church still assume him to be the head? Oh yes, we do. Although we are living in a different era, and we are living in a different culture from Paul, the church still looks at Christ as the head then the husband must still be the head of the wife. And if what Paul is saying about husbands and wives is somehow culturally bound, then what he is saying about Christ and the church should also be culturally bound. But instead, he says in verse 32, the mystery, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the relationship with Christ and the church has not changed with time. Neither has the relationship between the husband and wife as stated for us in Scripture. So now the question is, what does it mean for the husband to be the head? Okay, what exactly is the Scripture saying here? Now, let me just tell you what it cannot mean before we go to what it means. All right? What it cannot mean is this, that a head of the house cannot mean nothing. Because some of us would read this, and we've read this so many times, we have heard this preach at almost every wedding, they are quoting this, this set of scriptures, that we come to the point where we just ignore it. We come to the point where we say, ah, this is not important. It's really not important. Now this... People, this is a very serious truth that will affect the dynamics and the flourishing of any marriage. If you were to treat it as nothing, let me tell you, you will never enjoy the benefits of it for yourself or your spouse or your children or your family in the long run. If you look at the entire context into which, God, I mean, into which Paul places this call for headship, it comes up from verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the blood with, with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. While our culture is very concerned about the word head being equal to dominions. That's what we think. Head means dominions. You know, I must tell you that from in my, in my career as a pastor, when I was counseling married couples, I very often hear how wives desire, they so desire that their husbands will provide leadership in the relationship and in the family. That's one of the cries of the wives. And the reason many wives long for their husbands to lead could be because a lot of husbands have looked at these verses in their minds and they've interpreted headship for passivity in the home. 
They look at headship as something that I do outside the home. For the home, but not in the home. They think, you see, I'm the head of my house, I'm my home, yes. And I'm ultimately responsible to bring in the money so that this family stays comfortable, so that we can move, move forward in life. And I'm the king of my household. All right? I have to go out there and I have to fight many battles on a day in and day out basis. And when I come home, I am entitled to rest. I don't want to think about any more problems at home. It is my privilege and my right to find rest. My home should be an oasis of rest for me. I don't care what happens to the wife. She can work all she wants, outside, inside, everywhere. All right? Because, you know, she, uh, she's built that way. She's wired up that way. But not me, you know. I have, my capacity is maxed out out there in a marketplace. And I earn the right to come home and rest. I'm the head of this household. Now that's the understanding of headship for many men. But Paul says the model of headship is Christ. The model of headship is not your father. It's not the uncle that you respect. You know, it's not even your pastor. The model of headship is Christ. So you to look at Christ. And he was working hard when he came to live among us. He living to become the perfect sacrifice, suffering and dying on the cross. And today by the work of the Holy Spirit and his living word, he is still working to make us who are his body, the church, glorious to himself. And we will talk about dominance in a little bit, people, but it's important that we make sure that head doesn't mean passivity, as though it means no responsibility as a husband in the marriage or in the family. But gross passivity in the home on the part of the husband people is very common. Um, husbands who, there, there are many, many husbands out there and uh, I'm saying out there, may not be here in this room, but they are definitely out there, you know, who hardly make any decisions regarding the family. They leave it all to the wives. Every decision in the home, you make it. All right? You do whatever you want. And unless the wife pushes them to decide, they will just sit on it. You know, we need to get new shoes for the kids. You go and buy them. You know, I think our, our, you know, our, son, our, our son's maths is just going down. You go and find a tutor. You know? It's like everything, leave it to you to do it. You know, and uh, you decide. And, and fathers who make no attempt, on the other hand, who, to discipline their children, they leave it all to the wife to play the bad guy with the kids. They want to play with the kids, but they do not want to discipline the kids. And they leave it to the wife. The same thing, you know, you, you, you discipline them. They, they, they don't want to be confrontational. As a result of this continual passivity, some husbands and some fathers slowly become emotionally distant from their wives and their children. That's the impact. That's the consequence. You're not involved in the lives of your children. And kids grow up not knowing their father because he wasn't really involved in their lives. And there's... And, and, these are some of the consequences fathers and husbands reap when, when they choose passivity over headship in their home. There's a type of male headship people that is self-absorbed, that is, that is self-contained and non-responsive. And the excuse is, can't you see that I'm so busy at work? Can't you see that, you know, that my job is just sucking the life out of me? Give me a break. Give me a break at home. And for such men, his headship really means nothing to him. You know, those verses that we read means nothing to him except taking care of himself. And oftentimes in Christian households, there are also men who don't want to rock the boat. I mean, they're afraid to create waves in, in the house. I mean, they're, like, they're emotionally already so drained outside that when they come back home, they do not want to have another confrontation. 
So they rather say nothing and be passive. And then we live in a culture today where there are a lot of young Christian men, like the way that you know you guys are right here, very young and promising, all right, who say, like, well, I don't want to be unbiblical, but I really don't want to rock the boat in my relationship with my, you know, with my wife or my girlfriend. You know, I I don't want to make them unhappy. You know, when you do that, you are saying that happiness to you is more important than holiness. I don't want to tell my wife what to do in the relationship. I don't want to order people around in my house. Yeah, I'm the head of the house, but I won't order anybody around. I don't want to do that because I just want to look nice. And I just want to look good. I tell you, husbands and f- a husband's and father's passivity does have serious consequences on how the wife turns out and how the children turn out. And the Bible does not permit the man to be uninvolved, to be intentionally deaf or selfishly blind to issues and problems in the household. You see, when the husband is passive, the wife will eventually feel the pressure to push verbally. Like she will, she will say, why don't you do something? Why don't you do more? Why don't you say more? Why don't you lead us in prayer? Why don't you lead us spiritually? Why don't you, you know, open the Bible with us? And you know how that sounds to the husband? Nagging. It doesn't sound like God speaking through the wife. It is nagging, you know, it's like, and you see the husband's complain always, she is always nagging. You know why she's nagging? Because she is pushed verbally. You are not moving. You are not doing anything. And if you are determined as a man to remain unresponsive, you know, while she is pushing you, which you term as nagging, that is going to lead you as a man to become resentful every time you are being pushed. And one day, you know what happens? You erupt like a volcano. And that becomes very unhealthy. And you you can become verbally and even physically abusive, which later you will regret and feel guilty about. But people, these are the grave consequences of passivity. Husbands, and all the potential husbands to be here, listen, indifference to the needs of the wife and the family is not biblical headship. Biblical headship doesn't mean doing nothing. Number two, headship is not superiority. This is another confusion we have. By that I mean the headship cannot be somebody in some spiritual hierarchy taking advantage of somebody else. Headship cannot be defined that way. I'll define headship in a while, but that is not headship. And the reason I say that is because we simply are told in verse 25, husbands love your wife. And in the Bible, love is never defined as, defined as taking advantage of another person. And I know that every one of us knows 1 Corinthians 13, but it may help us to hear it again. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. And whatever you think hateship is, it is clear that it includes loving your wife this way. And therefore, it cannot mean that I am somehow so spiritually privileged that I have the right of taking advantage of her. It cannot mean that and still be biblical. If you look at Jesus' sacrificial ministry, He's the head of the church. He washed the feet of the disciples. He gave up His heavenly glory. He suffered on the cross. All of this demonstrates biblical headship. And it never permits one to use his position for selfish benefits. So if, 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 if headship is not either of these things, then what is it? First of all, people, biblical headship is authority. Now this again is a, like a, once you hear the word authority, it's like, oh, you know, 
I do not want anyone to have authority over me. Not even my husband. You know, that kind of thinking seems to come. But let me just help you understand what this is. So stay with me for a little while, okay? Ephesians chapter 5, verse, 23, verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now what, while headship is not superiority, it is still authority because however you want to define the relationship between Christ and the church, you will have to say that Christ is the head of the church and if He is the head of the church, Christ has authority, of the, has authority over the church. So also the husband in his relationship to his wife, he has authority over her. And to what extent is, is, is the husband's authority? Verse 24 tells us, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now our culture is repulsed by this. I mean, it may even be that some people, when they hear something like that, they, they just cannot accept it. Some of you may feel like, I feel like walking out right now. Don't do that, okay? Because you're going to love this. Wives, you are really going to love this as we move, move on. So, so, so just stay right there, all right? Now, and I tell you why we are repulsed by this, okay? The reason is because by and large people, we have grown up in a fatherless generation. And at least uh, in, you know, in the more Western and affluent cultures. I mean, this is very true in Singapore. Uh, or in a city like New York, but I'm sure that it is becoming more and more the case uh, in mega cities like Mumbai uh, and Delhi and all of that. Many in our, in our times are growing up where the father is not present in the home. Either because of, 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 of divorce or... or uh, is everything falling? Yeah. <laughs> But that went off, this thing fell, it's like, if you are not reacting, the environment is. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it, it, uh, we live in a father, the father's not present, either because of divorce or because of uh, career travels or because the tension between mom and dad or, or the dad is, or otherwise, the dad is just emotionally absent and he's just uninvolved with the kids and he is passive. As such, many young men, even Christian young men, grow up not really knowing what authority is really like because there has been no modeling. They have never experienced healthy authority growing up. So with no personal positive experience of biblical leadership and authority, all they can make out of authority is that it is negative and it is bad. And by and large, as a result of that, because they think authority is bad and authority is negative, they become soft. And they therefore want to be super kind. If they have a girlfriend, they want to be super kind. And they want to be super kind to their wives. Now, I'm not saying that you be unkind to your wife. That's not what I mean. But... They, they, want to f they, they want to be fair in dealing with them. They want to give their wives equal say in the relationship. Now, I'm not saying that all this is wrong. All right? So the, but the idea of authority of a woman just doesn't sit well with them, with many young people and, and, and with millennials. And yet the Apostle Paul clearly says that there is an authority. And that you're not fulfilling your role as a husband in the family, as the head of the house, if you don't exercise authority. If you abdicate your authority over your wife, then you are not operating a biblical marriage and you're not being a responsible husband. And listen, the real question is not whether authority exists or not. That's not the question, people. The question is how do you express authority? Husbands must express authority over their wives, but the way they express their authority is what is going to make all the difference. So, the next verse, sorry, 
We're still there, never mind. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now Paul says again, in all of these, you look at one man, Jesus Christ. And he has authority over the church. Well, the next question is, how does Jesus express that authority? Verse 25 says, authority is expressed in the way that Christ sacrifices for the church. He has authority over the church because he sacrificed himself for the church. And then in verse 26, his authority is expressed in how he sanctifies the church. And then in verse 25, 27, the authority is expressed in how Christ presents the church in splendor. So whatever your definition of headship is, it must include authority. And authority is sacrificing and serving your wife to the extent that she feels radiant before God. That's authority. Okay, you, you are a man of authority in your home if you learn to sacrifice for your wife and family and you serve her to the extent until she becomes radiant before God. That is biblical authority. And that's taken out of the text from verse 25 to verse 27. So my headship is not abandoning responsibility, but it's it is to become responsible to serve the wife so that she becomes glorious in Christ. So whatever authority is, is mine, I'm to use that authority to make sure that grace and love and justice are experienced in my home. You see, the husband is the authority, but he uses it to serve the interests of another. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of this. Jesus is the absolute authority over the church, but he uses his authority for the sake of the church, for the good of the church. So headship, people, is not abdication of authority. Headship, it is to use the authority for the good of another. That's biblical authority. Now, simply... Let me put it this way. The purpose for the husband's headship is to glorify his wife. Now, does that sound weird to you? Because we always think of only glorifying Christ. But I, please, don't look at this, don't look at this like worship. You're not to worship your wife. Alright? The word glorify here, if you look at the Webster Dictionary, it says to glorify is to make glorious by bestowing honor and praise and admiration. And that is what the purpose of the husband's headship is to, is to make the wife glorious by bestowing honor to her and praise to her and, and admiration to her. Back to verse 25 and verse 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. You see, Jesus makes the church glorious. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, he doesn't wound her, he doesn't damage her that she might be holy and become without blemish. Headship goes terribly wrong when you rob your wife of her radiance. If my headship is being properly expressed, then I tell my wife, I love you so much that I'm going to use the authority that God has given to me in order to make you radiant in order to bring love and grace and justice into our home for you and for our kids. And I am going to use that authority that God has given to me, that He has delegated to me, to bring the best out of you and to bring the best out of, my, of our kids. 
that you become radiant, that you become glorious as the lady in our house. Now, headship can, of course, be expressed in ways that are not biblical. All right? Instead of making the wife feel glorious before God, headship can be used to make his wife feel miserable. Instead of making her feel precious, the husband's headship can be used can, can, can be using his authority to make the wife feel worthless. But true biblical headship is to use the authority for the good of another such that they grow in radiance and in splendor before God. Now let me tell you a little bit about my marriage, okay? If you, if you, if you, know, if you have seen me and my, my wife, we are very different. I mean, we are worlds apart. In terms of our personality, we are like, you know, just different. And somehow, that happens in every marriage. Maybe that, you know, God allows that to happen. It's also true that when you are younger, you're always attracted to, peop- uh, to the opposite sex that are totally opposite to you in every way. You know? You, you somehow get attracted. And, uh, but they say that if you marry later and later, that is why you guys must quickly, you know, get married. Uh, if you marry later and later, you tend to look for people just like you, you know. But that takes the fun out of marriage. So, you know, and, and she and I are very different. I mean, she, you know, if, 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 you know, it is very easy for me in those early days to undermine her confidence in herself in, 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 in our marriage. My wife uh, is, was, was not who, uh, was not who she, she was... She, who she was then is not who she is today. Now, when I, and I, when I first courted her, she was a very ill-confident, a very, very quiet person. On the other hand, I was totally different. I was an overconfident, very loud you know, person. She was very indecisive. She couldn't decide over anything. I, and I was very decisive. We would go into a restaurant and sit down, and one look, and I know what I want to eat. And then she would look over it again and again and again. And it would be very irritating to me. <laughs> because I'm hungry. I want to eat. You know, and she's still deciding. And, I, and you know, you're in that situation, how it is. You know, it's just food, honey. I mean, it would not matter for eternity. Could you please decide what you want? You know, and then she, the more I pressure her, the harder to, for her to make a decision. And that was the relationship. That, that was the courtship. You know, so even before we began to have a good meal, we are already fighting. You know, because of my, I am just fast and furious. You know, and she is just slow and totally calm. You know, and it is just, just so different. And it would be very easy for me to just overtake and overrule and overcome and just overrun the relationship. And you know what? She would let me. She would literally let me because given her personality, she's not confrontative, she will not fight, fight back. I mean, it would have been super easy for me to exercise dominance in the name of headship. You know, or in the fact, in the fact that you are just too slow. You are just, you know, you're, you just cannot decide, you know. Let me take over. I can do it. And, you know, take advantage of her, just her quiet and submissive spirit. But early in the courtship, I begin to think, now what kind of a wife do I want 20, 30 years from them, from then? I mean, what kind of a mother, what kind of a grandmother would she become as my wife? And how would my headship over her affect her in her sanctification in Christ and who she becomes in the future? Because this is a woman I'm going to do life with until my final breath. You know, I've decided that I'm going to live this woman until I die. And therefore, what would she become as a result of who I am to her and my relationship to her, what would she become? What is my vision of my wife in 20 or 30 years' time? So I thought, I must be very careful not to undermine her confidence. I must be very sensitive to help build her identity in Christ, to help her come out of her shell, 
to bring out all that she is in Christ so that I can present her radiant and glorious in Christ. That's the kind of wife I want in 20, 30 years' time. That's the kind of mother who will be a blessing to her children. And that's the kind of person who will be the strength to my ministry. And that's the kind of wife who will make our sunset years a true delight. So because of that, of who I wanted my wife to be, I had to keep dying to myself. And I tell you that I failed many, many times because I've been impatient with her. I had gotten so frustrated with her. I gotten angry with her. And again and again, I had to go back to how God saw her in Christ. And I had to go back to how Christ gave himself to the church, despite the church's imperfection and how he had given himself to me, despite my sinfulness. And that was very sanctifying for me. Of course, over the years, she grew and she became more and more decisive and more and more confident to the point that today, I think that, you know, she just a bit too confident for me. You know, she moved from the way where she would not say anything to now to be very outright and, yeah, I mean, to say what she wants and to decide for what she wants. And, and, but that, no, it's great that, you know, she became like that. She's, she's become, as a result of that, she has become more and more radiant. And people, that has blessed me to this day. She was raising, we, we were both raising two children. And as you know, you know, when the kids are very different, one of our children is very strong-willed. That's a girl, okay? And she's very, very strong-willed. And she's totally opposite in temperament from her mother. She picked everything up from her dad, all right? And, but, you know, she was able to raise her up unwavered and unshaken, in her own identity in Christ. Because it just went so deep. It blessed every one of us in the family. I wonder how she would have turned out if I had used my headship to just dominate her and to crush her esteem. I fear to think what would have become of my wife. Especially, you know, as we grew older and older. So husbands... How are you treating your wife with the authority that God has given to you as the head of her life? You know, are you committed? Are you aligned with Scripture that you are you, you're going to use your headship to make her radiant, to make her glorious? I mean, you cannot imagine how many times we husbands think in our, in our heads that headship means I have to be more than my wife. I got to be smarter. I got to be more superior. You know, and therefore, if I have to be better and, 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 and more and smarter, then my wife has to be less. And it becomes an ego issue of trying to be more, more by putting down my wife. We think that if I can dominate my wife, then my significance and my headship is better established. But people, that is not the gospel. That is not Christ-likeness. If I am to be Christ-like to my wife, she should be more able, more confident, more ready to tackle anything, whether I'm around or not. I shouldn't be robbing my wife of her self-worth. That's not headship. I should be adding to her self-worth. So headship is not abandonment of authority, but it's use of authority for the good of another. One aspect of headship is to glorify another. A second aspect of headship, and the reason for it, is to sanctify oneself. Now, this is a, a, this is a very encouraging. Uh, these are very encouraging verses, twenty-eight and twenty-nine. In the same way, husbands husbands should love their wives as their body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Take note of that, okay? He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Now the analogy here is that once you are married, the two become one. So if you are helping your wife, you are actually helping yourself. 
So if you are making her radiant, you yourself are becoming radiant. If she is being sanctified, you are becoming more sanctified too. So, guys, by taking care of your wife, you are actually taking care of yourself before the Lord. If you love your wife, you are loving yourself. And so when you demonstrate Christ's likeness to your wife, you are getting to know Christ better in your life. So when I made the choice to die to my own aggressive, dominant nature and choose patience towards my wife, which was not one of my virtues, what happened to me was that I was learning who Christ is. And it helped me better know Christ as I chose Christ-likeness. Now, the opposite is always true. If you as a husband were to continue to demean your wife, like if you were to always compare her to other women, you know, that is suicidal, people. Ever do that? I mean, you compare your wife to another woman or you question her, her appearance, you are destroying yourself by destroying her. If you were to put her down before the kids, before your friends, or if you keep harping on the fact that she is incapable, or that she's petty, or that she's naggy, or whatever, you are literally destroying yourself by destroying her. If the goal of headship is to use, is to, is to use, is to use that authority for the good of another, then what will not be benefiting the other is, is, is that is, is when you demean one another, when, 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 when all of that breaks down. And, and I, don't want you, I don't want to be hypothetical here, so let me just a little bit more, uh, share a little bit more stuff from coming out of my wife and, my, and our families. When my wife was growing up in her mid-teens, the marital problems that her parents had and then her mother's subsequent depression and on top of that, she had an older sister who was very vocal, very outright rebellious teenager. All of this caused her to become emotionally numb in order to protect her own heart from hurt. So when I met her and we were courting, I had a girlfriend who was not greatly responsive emotionally. You know, it was like she was emotionally frozen on the inside. And although she was able to cry, and thank God she was able to cry, and she cried a lot, a lot, a lot in the courtship, but she was not able to respond to my affection. And that was very frustrating to me. So whenever I told her, I love you, she would look blankly at me. And she couldn't understand what that really meant. She couldn't respond to those words. She couldn't respond back to say, I love you too. And I thought for a moment, simple words, just tell me you love me. She couldn't say it. They said, do you really love me? She would nod her head. Can you please say it? She couldn't say it. So it was like, and I on the other hand, I had come from a very Indian family background and we were all very loud at home. We were all very expressive. There were a lot of hugs and kisses. Walk through the door, one hug, walk out of the door, another hug. You know, it's, it's, it, it was like so natural. And we were emotionally reactive. We spoke our mind. We were explosive. But at the same time, we were highly affectionate. That was my family. So when we got married, here's this guy who's loud and emotional, very expressive and affectionate. And then here's this girl who is emotionally rather numb and frozen. And it was like, you know, what do we do with this? You know, and what, what I realized I needed to do was that I needed to tone down, you know, and, and, and I needed, I, I personally, my sanctification in the whole process was that I need to be more stable emotionally because, you know, and she needed to warm up emotionally. And over the years, and it has been now 35 years of marriage and probably 37 if you include the two years of courtship. And I think in so many ways, by being married to Christina, I actually re-found myself. And I think that, and I believe rather, that she re-found herself. 
I found the best in me being married to her. And today, I'm more emotionally toned down, much, much more toned down. You know, and she is more, you know, she has, she has just flourished emotionally so much better. And my wife has been there to help me to keep that balance. And she probably found her best too. Now, I remember that um, when our son was born, I was at that time 29 years old and she was 28. And he was born three months premature. And that evening, I was, you know, the, the, the day that he was born, I was going to pieces. I mean, it's like, I didn't sign up for this. You know, why is this happening to us? God, what is all this? And, you know, it's just, just going to pieces. And I couldn't hold myself together until, you know, when they wheel her in and after the cesarean section and all of that and, 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 and the hospital bed, and I saw her. And when I saw her, I saw the strength that she had in, a, in, the, in the crisis. And I needed that for myself. And God used that to bring me strength. Can you imagine if I was falling apart and she was also falling apart? You know, and, 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 and then through the months, she, she demonstrated such loving patience uh, and perseverance in caring for the baby. I could have never done that. And it totally changed me. And can you imagine if I had somehow succeeded in the early years of marriage in putting her down for emotional numbness and criticizing her for her slowness and, and, and raising my expectations of her to become more like me, fast and furious all the time, and not letting her to be herself. And somehow thinking that my significance is in her diminishing. I dare not think of the damage that I could have done to her and the damage that I could have done to myself as a result of that. I really don't know who I would have become as a man, as a person, as a father, as a pastor, if the Lord had not put Christina in my life. And I'm so thankful. But I, have, I, have, I also have a responsibility. And my responsibility as a head of the house is to use my authority to see the love and grace and justice rule in our home, and that she becomes... She comes into her radiance, and in her radiance, I am blessed. Now, let me close with this. How do you do this if you are a husband? What power does God give us to use our headship and our authority to make our wives radiant, and at the same time, to sanctify ourselves? What resources does God give to us to accomplish these things? Now, in Ephesians 5, we have two things. Number one, is self-sacrifice. It says here, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, what does it mean to be self-sacrificing for your wife? When do you self-sacrifice? Does it mean that you're willing to die for her when the terrorist walks through your door? That you know you protect your wife, say, kill me, don't kill her. But how many occasions do you have for a terrorist to walk into your house? where you can demonstrate that kind of self-sacrificial love. Hardly. Most of us husbands say, yeah, if, if my wife is threatened from, with death, I will, you know, I will protect her. But it hardly happens in our lifetime. So how do you do that? Now in a book, uh, this is a great book, people. Uh, the book is called A Promise Kept. That book was written by J. Robertson McKillen. He's a, sem he's a seminary president and he tells the story of his wife's Al Alzheimer's disease. His wife, Muriel, and him lived in a seminary campus. And as the disease progressed, Muriel wanted to be with her husband again and again because it brought her comfort and joy. So she was uneasy without him and she was desperate for him. So she would walk from their home to his office like about half a kilometer away and she will walk there and be with him. And then he will walk her back, and, or someone else will walk her back. So it was once a day. Then it became several times a day, back and forth, back and forth, just longing to be with him. And one night as she was helping her to, helping her to get ready for bed, he took off her shoes and he saw that her feet were bloody from walking back and forth. At that time, he knew. He, he knew at that point that her need of her was so great. And he knew at that point what he actually needed to do, how he was to ex exercise his love for her 
and his authority over her. And he decided that night that he would resign as, uh, from his presidency for the sake of his wife to be with her full time. He gave up his fame, his leadership, his career, all the stuff that actually brings fulfillment to a man. He gave it all up just to be with her. So his mind, his intellect, his authority was all now used for the sake of one person, his wife, who had Alzheimer's. And people, here's a beautiful example of headship and authority expressed in self-sacrifice. He just didn't want his wife robbed of glory just because she had Alzheimer's. He wanted to make her radiant. Now people, that's a biblical husband. And how do you do, how do, you do such a thing? How, how do you live for the sake of another like that? The obvious thing that Paul is doing here, he's not just saying that our resources to be the head of the house, home is just self-sacrifice. Ultimately, the resource we have is in Christ's sacrifice. I think if we just do a human resolve saying, you know what, all right, I'm going to exercise authority for the sake of my wife's radiance. Uh, I just resolve. That, that resolve will not sustain you. Listen. I just float this thought to you, okay? If you have never benefited from another person's sacrifice in your life, you will never be sacrificial. We only do unto others what has been done to us. So, you will only treat others as you have been treated. That is why you got to know how Christ has given His all for you. Not just in your head, but in your heart. How He gave up His glory in heaven to make you glorious. How he sacrificed his life and, and to the point of death so that you could have eternal life. You've got to be gripped by the gospel. And that is what is going to fill your life to sacrifice for another, even if they don't repay you back in any way, as in the case of Muriel. What can Muriel do for her husband now? Nothing. And yet, Robert McKillen would give He's all for her. Now, in his book, you know, after his book was published and it went out for sale in the early 90s, that book swept the Christian world. Couples everywhere were renewing their wedding vows and, and there were stories of people who were about to divorce, who came back together again. And then he wrote an article in Christianity Today that all that, all that sensation astounded him because all he did was to just give himself to his wife. He didn't understand why this book could cause so much, bring so much impact into the lives of people. Until he said that one day he went to see his oncologist. And his oncologist explained to him why people were crazy about his story. The oncologist said, you know, who had seen so many couples suffering because of cancer, said that the reports show that it is the wives who will commonly give up their jobs or their careers to care for their ailing husbands. It is never the other way around. It is very rare for a husband to give up a promising career to care for his wife in her sickness. And the fact that Robertson McKillen was willing to do that for his wife was countercultural. It was up against the natural instincts of so many men that it simply astounded people. It inspired people. But McKillen said, in his article, that you know what, all that he did for his wife was only because of what Christ has done for him. And because he felt so cared for by Jesus Christ, sinful as he is as a person, he felt like it was not difficult for him to give up his career and his job and his fame in order to care for his wife. It's Christ's sacrifice that enabled him to self-sacrifice. And people, until you know the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in your own life, you will not have the power to be able to sacrifice for anyone, and especially your family. And that's the reason why we need to be gripped by the gospel. The gospel does change everything, including our marriage. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Our dear Father, we come before you, Lord, to 
Thank you for your word. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that our resource, our wealth is in him. And because he has given himself to us, we can give ourselves to one another. And Father, I want to pray for the husbands here. I want to pray for the would-be husbands here. I pray, Lord, that you enable us to take the authority that you've given to us as men seriously. And Lord, not to use that authority to abuse or not to abdicate that authority, but to use that authority for the good of our wives such that they become radiant and glorious before Christ. Father, for that we ask, Lord, that you empower us and enable us. And Lord, as we drink of your gospel, may that become a reality in our lives and in the lives of our families. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.